Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for giving your word to us. We need you to enrich our understanding of you and what you've done for us through your son. Help us to see Jesus and his accomplishments and his love for us through his sacrifice. Lord, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, we are at a pretty interesting point in the Apostles' Creed because it seems to slow down. We have God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and now we slow down to focus on just three days of Jesus' life. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell. We learned about who Jesus is last week, but tonight we get to focus on what Jesus did, namely his unnecessary obedient suffering and his death on our behalf and how it brings salvation to God's people. In the creed, we move immediately from the birth of Christ to his suffering. Everything kind of seemed to be going well up to this point. We had the creation, we had the virgin birth, but now we have suffering. And it begs the question, why on earth did Christ suffer? So to know why Christ suffered and why there is suffering in general, we need to go all the way back to the beginning with Adam in the garden. As a first man, Adam acted as the representative of all humanity. And through Adam's one act of disobedience to God's one command, sin entered the world. This act of disobedience resulted in a curse being put upon the world. Women were cursed in childbirth, men were cursed in difficult labor, and the very ground itself was cursed. Adam's sin had brought the judgment of God, the only just judgment for such a high treason, such, such disobedience, is eternal death. And after the fall, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden and out of his presence. Man, who was designed to be an unbroken fellowship with God, had been separated from him. And Adam's curse was not just his own, but this curse spread to all who were descended from him, which is every human being. Because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's disobedience, we are all cursed. So we see that Adam's disobedience resulted in the curse being brought upon the world, that leaves humanity under the penalty of God's wrath against sin, and it results in humanity being exiled, being separated from God's presence. So in order to be made right with God, he requires from us both perfect obedience and a payment for sin. However, the book of Romans tells us that we've all sinned and fall short. So there goes our perfect obedience, and, at that, and that the payment or the punishment of sin is an infinite death because we offended an infinite God who is infinite holy. So good luck paying that off. But God, in his great love, enacted a plan of salvation by which human beings could be given life, have their sins paid for, and be brought back into the presence and fellowship of God. God provided this plan of salvation through his only son, Jesus Christ, who was perfectly obedient, he was perfectly sinless, 
and he could take the entirety of God's perfect punishment on our behalf. And he did that through his life here on earth. And while Christ suffered immensely in his last days, as we read in the Creed, suffering characterized the entire life and ministry of our Messiah. So on the one hand, suffered under Pontius Pilate is very specific in that it names names, but on the other hand, it gives a summary of Christ's entire life and these final days showing us the apex of Christ's suffering. In Luke 24, Jesus described his own life in two stages, the suffering of the Messiah and his subsequent glories. Christ came to earth to suffer, and he enters into glory upon his resurrection. Christ's life was a life of humiliation, beginning with his incarnation where he deprives himself of his godly glory and becomes like us, like lowly humans in all respects. So we have the Son of God to whom All glory should be given. He walked the earth, which he created, by the way, but his own people rejected him. The Son of God was born in a lowly manger, which is really just a nice way to say a feeding trough. He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He faced hunger and fatigue. He mourned and he wept. He was betrayed. He was beaten and whipped. And he was ultimately nailed through his hands and his feet to a cross of wood. He was an innocent man wrongly condemned to die like a reprehensible criminal. Do you guys realize how insane this is? Like, just take a second. Jesus Christ, who is God, the second person of the Trinity, suffered in human flesh. The almighty God willingly suffered. This is so important and pivotal to our faith that it's the center, it's the pinnacle of the creed. Our entire faith hinges on the fact that we have a God that willingly suffered and died on our behalf to bring us back to him. And Christ's perfect offering of obedience and receiving God's judgment culminated in his crucifixion, death, and burial. Christ's offering of himself on the cross is where all of this comes to a head. And it is pivotal to our justification and salvation. But first, let's look at what the creed is reminding us about. Namely, it's crucifixion, death, and burial. These words remind us that Jesus Christ, he truly died and he truly was buried. As we learned last week from Sam, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. In in Jesus' incarnation, he took on flesh and bone. This means that Jesus truly lived and had a true body, just like you and me. He got hungry, he got tired, he ate, he slept. He had a body that was capable of dying. And when he was nailed to the cross and took the sins of the world upon him, he actually died. And the creed emphasizes this with with the phrase, and was buried. Jesus' death was a true Death, his burial, was a true burial. Now, the difference between Jesus' death and ours was that he dies without sin. Christ lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Through Christ's perfect obedience, which we'll talk about more in a moment, he overturns the curse that was brought in by Adam's disobedience. 
And in the face of indescribable agony, Jesus still obeyed. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and he could have called a legion of angels to come and stop it, but he offered himself in obedience to the Father's will. So listen to what Christ says in Luke 22. Uh, this is right before, the day before he's going to be crucified. He prays to the Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of wrath from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And again, how he's described in Philippians 2, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there are three aspects, three accomplishments of Christ's crucifixion, death, and burial that we want to consider. In all these aspects, they help us see Christ's atoning work and salvation a little more clearly. We're going to look at Christ's accomplishment of curse-bearing, his propitiation, and reconciliation. And all of these accomplishments in his death build to that fantastic pinnacle of our justification when Christ was raised from the dead, but we'll learn more about that next week. So first, let's focus on Christ's curse-bearing on the cross. In Adam's disobedience in the garden, all humanity and even the whole world fell under the curse. And this curse is symbolized in the shame and humiliation of being hanged on a tree. In Deuteronomy 21, it's written, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Of Christ's work on the cross, the Apostle Paul writes in the letter to Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So you see, Paul is referencing back to the text in Deuteronomy we just read. Christ became a curse in order to redeem his people and overturn the curse upon the world. And so this is why we declare that Christ was crucified in the creed. And it simply wouldn't be enough to just say he died, but crucifixion was important. Crucifixion was reserved for the most despicable of criminals. And it was actually fitting for Jesus to die this way because he became the most reprehensible sinner in the sight of God when he placed the sins of the world upon himself. Let me be clear, it's not Christ's sin that makes him reprehensible, it was our sin. And what's more, he was hung on a tree to demonstrate the curse that rested on him for our sake. Christ became a curse for us. The innocent and blessed son of God was hanged on a tree as though he were a rotten criminal. And he suffered the unspeakable experience of the wrath of God in our place that we may experience his unspeakable blessings. Through faith in Christ, he bears our curse and we receive his blessing, which is our justification from our sins and life forever with him. Which brings us to propitiation. Propitiation is the turning aside of God's wrath through Christ's sacrifice. He takes the punishment that we deserve. 
1 John 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. Romans 3 says, Christ Jesus is a propitiation by his blood to show God's righteousness so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our God is a wrathful God. He has a personal anger against sin. And his wrath is both extreme and just. It is extreme in that it is terrible to experience and it is just and that is exactly what sinners deserve because of their sin. Christ offered himself up as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins so that God could be the just and the justifier. Our God is perfect and therefore cannot tolerate any imperfection, i.e. sin. And God does not simply not tolerate sin, he hates sin. God is absolutely holy and just and therefore must, in his eternal character, hate sin. His almighty glory requires him to destroy sin, to annihilate sin, to wipe it out of his existence. So it would have been just of God to, in his holiness, wipe out sinners and sin completely. It would have been just of him to do that, but that wouldn't have made him the justifier. Now, on the other hand, if God just lets sin go unpunished and lets everyone come into his presence, he may be the justifier, but he's not just. So how does God solve this dilemma? He solves it by sending his son to take the punishment and the outpouring of God's wrath on the cross. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath to its bitter dregs. Christ endured the full and unimaginable power of God's wrath on the cross. He sent Christ to be a propitiation so that he would experience the full wrath of God to pay the penalty of sin so that God could be both the one who is just and the justifier. Now, I think it's a good place to talk about the phrase in the creed, he descended into hell. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this phrase with some arguing that descending into hell should be removed from the creed altogether. And others change a phrase to he descended into the place of the dead or he descended into Hades. So regardless of the verbiage that you prefer, it's still the most hotly contested portion of the creed. Uh, part of the controversy comes in the fact that the phrase wasn't found in the earliest versions of the, of the creed and part of it lies in disagreements of what the, the descent really means. And I'm going to be kind of unsatisfactory for some of you. And I'm not going to go into all the different interpretations. We just don't have time. And frankly, it doesn't change our understanding of the work of the cross. If you want to talk offline, happy to. And then you can inevitably talk to Mitch, and he'll give you the answer you want to hear. (laughs) I will, however, tell you what it does not mean and what it cannot mean. Firstly, it does not mean that when Jesus died, his spirit went into the place of capital H, hell. Capital H, hell is often referred to, they used to refer to a place called the Lake of Fire or Gehenna. The Lake of Fire is a final place of judgment reserved for the last days when the new heavens and the new earth, when death and Hades are cast into the Lake of Fire, as it says in Revelation 20. That's future judgment. Christ did not go to the Lake of Fire when he died. Secondly, it does not mean 
that Christ went into the place of the dead to give sinners some type of second chance at salvation. Hebrews 9 tells us that after death there is judgment. 2 Corinthians tells us that we are judged by what we do in the body. So there is no second chance or opportunity for salvation offered to human beings after death. Thirdly, it does not mean that Christ went into hell to gloat over the demons or Satan. And lastly, and most importantly, he descended into hell does not mean that Christ continued to suffer God's wrath after his crucifixion. On the cross, when Jesus lifted up his spirit, he exclaimed, it is finished. The punishment of God's wrath was paid in full when Jesus died on the cross. It was finished on the cross. Christ's payment was fully satisfactory to, make our, to pay for our immeasurable sin debt. He paid a God-sized debt that would have taken us an eternity to satisfy in a moment because he's God. So regardless of the intentions of the writers of the Apostles' Creed, when we say that Christ descended into hell, the main takeaway is that when Jesus died on the cross, his death was true and complete. Jesus truly died for sinners. And as he died, he suffered the reality of hell, the full consequences for all of our sin. He suffered for us. Because he descended into hell on the cross, we have the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. So do you see how Christ suffering the reality of hell brings us back to propitiation? We needed a savior who could take the full and complete punishment that was required by God and come out victorious over death. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God takes all of our sin, imputes it to Christ, and there he strikes it. God takes, Christ takes God's wrath so that we don't have to. Jesus received the punishment, and in return, we receive peace with God. If you're Christ, God is pleased with you right now, which brings us to reconciliation. Reconciliation is the reestablishment of peace with God. Outside of Christ's saving work, we're alienated, and we're actually enemies of God outside of Christ. Adam was kicked out of God's presence when he disobeyed, and now our sin-filled lives are evidence that we don't love God and that we're separated from him. Humans were meant to live in eternal fellowship with God, but because of Adam's sin, that relationship has been shattered. But Christ's death on the cross achieved reconciliation between God and us. So turn with me to Colossians 1. Uh, that can be found on page 983 in the Pew Bibles. Starting in verse 19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And, listen to this, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to him. In the death of Jesus, God reconciled the world to himself. 
so that anyone who put their faith in him may be reconciled with the Father. We have an amazing picture of this when upon Christ's death, the curtain separating the people from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. The physical representation of our separation from God was ripped from top to bottom. Through Christ's atoning work on the cross, access to God has been restored. And if you remember, the Holy of Holies, where this curtain separated, was only allowed to be entered on one specific day a year, only after a series of intense ritual animal sacrifices and cleansings. And on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats offered as payment for sins in order to enter God's presence. There was the atoning goat and the scapegoat. The atoning goat was sacrificed as a blood payment to enter God's presence, and the scapegoat had the sins of Israel pressed upon it and driven out from the people. But it was clear that the blood of animals never truly satisfied the payment requirement, but the, the payment required for sins, which is why they did it over and over and over again, but instead pointed to a greater sacrifice. And in fact, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to a greater sacrifice, a sacrifice whose blood and removal of sins would once and for all pay that infinite sin debt. And we have right here in Jesus Christ, a great high priest who offered himself as a holy and blameless sacrifice whose one blood payment covered the sins of the world. Through his sacrifice, our sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west. We get to go into God's presence because our sins have been driven out. Through his blood, we can be in the presence of God. Through his sin-bearing exile, we are now brought near to God. And how is it that Christ takes all this curse-bearing, all the wrath and all the separation, and we get all the blessing, all the peace, and all the fellowship with God? It sounds like a pretty great deal to me. Well, when you put your faith in Christ, you enter into Christ's work on the cross. When you come to Christ, you come into union with Christ and united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 5 tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Christ was, sacrificed, when Christ was crucified, if you are in Christ, you are crucified. When he died, if you're in Christ, you died. When he was buried, if you're in Christ, you were buried. When he rose from the dead, if you were in Christ, you rose from the dead and now walk in newness of life with him. And how do you come into union with Christ? You come to Christ at his death. You look to him on the cross and live. You come into that union by dying to yourself and turning to Christ in faith. When you turn to Christ in faith, his death becomes your death. His resurrection and life become your resurrection and life and you become eternally bound with Christ. So we have two options. Either die in Christ or remain where you currently are already dead in your trespasses and sins. The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Everyone who sins dies and since everyone sins, everyone dies. So your options are to remain where you are in death 
which will ultimately lead to eternal separation from God, which is the eternal death in that lake of fire, or you can come to Christ and die in him. And the difference is that Christ does not stay dead. Christ rose from the dead. He conquered death itself, and you get to share in that with him. So I beg you, if, for those who have not come to Christ, what are you doing? Don't choose the option of your own death. But die in Christ so you may live forever. Christ has already made that sacrifice for you. So what do we take away from this? Firstly, what must it say about the heinousness of sin? Our sin was so horribly offensive that God had to send his son, his only son, to live a life of suffering, to die a horrible death and bear God's awesome wrath to free us from his power. So let me ask you, how seriously are you taking your sin? What sins do you think aren't big enough or maybe not in the open enough for you to kill? Have you become complacent in your struggle against sin? So let me encourage you to see sin for what it is. There's no greater showcase of God's love <laughs> than we see that, uh, of the cross of Christ. But there's also no greater showcase of God's hatred for sin than the cross of Christ. So do you hate your sin? Ask God to show you your sins and to, and to show you <laughs> how much you should hate them as much as God hates them. And as much as God shows his hatred of sin, he shows his love for us through the most precious offering that could ever be made, his only son. Christ's sacrifice was the pinnacle of love. There's no greater love than this, that one would lay down their life for his friends. Christ laid down his life for any and all who put their faith in him, and through his sacrifice we have the forgiveness of sins. So if you're in Christ, your sins have been paid for, which means you are no longer guilty and now have freedom from the power of sin. Christ has freed you from the power of sin through his sacrifice. The blood of Jesus removes our guilt and makes us united with him. We are free from sin. We get to live in Christ. So fight the war against sin. And it's a war that, that through the power of Christ, we cannot lose. And if you have put your faith in him, you're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Christ purchased you with his blood and adopted you as sons and daughters into the family of God. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives through you. If you are a believer, you are bought by him and owned by him, so identify with him. You identify with Christ through your suffering and specifically through your suffering for the sake of the gospel. This means that whenever you're called to choose between the things of this world or Christ, choose Christ. Show the world that this is not your treasure, but Christ is your treasure, believing that if you lose any or all things that you have in this world, including your life, you've really not lost anything at all, because Christ is your all. When you count all things as lost in view of knowing Christ, then you are prepared to suffer with Christ. It doesn't mean that suffering is going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. But you'll be prepared when Christ calls you to give up all for his sake. And therefore, you should be bold in your faith, too. First Peter tells us, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. So take it all as blessing when you suffer for Christ's sake because you get to share in Christ's suffering. That should get us fired up to share a Christ because no matter the response you get, it's going to be glorious. If you share the word of Christ and they accept it, great, God is glorified. If you share the word of Christ and you suffer because of it, great, you get to share in Christ's suffering and you're blessed by it. We can glory in this because Christ has already done it. Christ has done it first. Christ gave up everything for us and now empowers us through the Holy Spirit to follow him. And Christ doesn't expect you to grit your teeth and just tough it out, but rather simply lean on him and trust him. He can sympathize with everything you're going through and he can help you through all of your trials. And lastly, as we come to a close, let the sacrificial love of Christ remind us to love one another as he has loved us. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus demonstrated love to the fullest when he laid, his life, laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for all who would put their trust in him. So brothers and sisters, as Mitch reminded us on Sunday, let us imitate Christ and lay down our lives for one another. This means putting others' needs before your own and forgiving as you have been forgiven. And true love is a sacrificial love. It's really easy to love when it's convenient, but love shows itself most when we're forced to sacrifice something in order to love the other person. So let me ask you, are you loving the church? Are you loving the church only when it fits your schedule? Are you loving the church only when it fits your interests? Are you loving the church only when it fits your budget? Ask the Lord to help you to do some diagnostics on your heart to see where your, where your love truly lies. And brothers and sisters, if you have been, you've had an immeasurable, an immeasurable sin debt paid for you, therefore forgive freely. Don't be so narrow focused on your own interpersonal gripes that you forget what Christ has done for you. Forgive and love your brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ has loved you. You will never forgive them more than Christ has already forgiven you. For we have a great high priest who willingly offered himself up as a suffering servant that he may die on the cross, break the curse of sin, bear the wrath, and bring us into eternal fellowship with God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, how amazing is the suffering and sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that while we were still enemies, you sent your only begotten son to die as a propitiation for our sins and reconcile us back to God. Help us to bask in your great love and to love as God, as Christ loved us, laying down his life for us. Help us to be a church that is serious about fighting sin and loving one another. And Lord, we thank you that through Christ, he becomes a curse on our behalf, and we are given immeasurable blessings. Lord, keep us and secure us. I pray it's all in Christ's name. Amen.